So I think PAGA is the biggest headache right now that employers of all sizes are facing. That on top of class action threats, but we California at least has been able to, um, a win for employers was the ability to have mandatory arbitration agreements. So businesses can um, have as a condition of employment employees need to are onboarding, they need to sign an arbitration agreement. So any dispute on the individual basis has to be arbitrated rather than go to superior court. And within those arbitration agreements, we often see, you know, class action waivers. So that individual can't participate in a class action, but we they are not allowed to have that same um that same waiver for PAGA. PAGA is both a representative action and a non-representative action on the individual side. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, president of Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. And this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Because California is often on the vanguard of national trends in labor and employment law, we occasionally dedicate an episode to check in on the left coast to see what dystopian HR hellscape may be in the rest of the country's future. Sorry, I'm a Texan, and that's the obligatory dig at my friends in California. But joining me today to discuss updates in California law is Corinne Spencer. Corinne is a partner at the Los Angeles-based law firm, Perlman, Brown, and Wax, and she's chair of the firm's Labor and Employment Practice Group. Corinne counsels and represents clients in employment-related matters, including litigation, risk assessment, policy preparation, personnel decisions, and training. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Corinne. Thank you, Mike. I'm excited to be here. So we've... uh, we we've had episodes where we really talk about California law and and the unique things that come with being an employer in California. What is your take on why California is so complex compared to the rest of the country? I think California's leadership and an obligation that the government has to its people and be as they are very dedicated to being progressive and being a leader for the country in so many things, including employee rights. So I think it's become more and more challenging for employers to juggle all the different types of requirements, obligations, duties, while still being family-oriented or having heart towards their employees to make them feel like they are seen, they are heard, they are taken care of. So I think California, I think it comes from the top and just that it's been a very progressive, liberal, democratic state for a long time now, even though there is a lot of wealth and conservative business owners in the state. But more and more, I think we are seeing businesses have to juggle almost too much, that they're getting caught, they're getting trapped, whether it's wage and hour class actions that are expensive to defend and PAGA, you know, Private Attorneys General Act claims that every employer is likely in violation of some technical uh, requirement of the labor code in some form or another. So 
I think California, for employers who want to stay in the state, it's becoming more and more important to become savvy and on top of employment-related laws, regulations, have strong HR, whether it's internal internal employees that you're hiring talent or you, you know, partner with an outside HR consulting company and also having employment counsel that you can rely on for asking questions and keeping on top of the laws is part of, it's a cost of doing business, I think now for employers who want to stay in California for all the good and the bad. Yeah. And I think what you said about having HR consultants, but especially having California-based employment law counsel available. I'm talking to clients all the time in California, and they ask me questions that in 49 other states I'd be comfortable answering. Uh, and uh, But California is often one of those things where I I say, you you know, here's what I understand, but I really think in this case you need to go talk to a lawyer because there are so many ins and outs and so many exemptions based on maybe size or, or industry on some of these things that, uh, and California has stronger than a lot of states, especially Texas here where I am, uh, an interpretory regulatory body, a lot of them that, that interpret laws uniquely. And, uh, and it's, it's, you know, much like the federal government. And, um, so you can read the letter of the law and think you're in compliance, but if you don't know that this particular commission or this whatever has published their own guidance that have basically the effect of law uh, until a court says otherwise, you you can get yourself into a lot of trouble there. Right, right. Exactly. Like the Cal, Cal OSHA, for example, the California version of OSHA, you know, occupational safety and health. They People can feel, you may feel comfortable in Texas or other places with what OSHA might do or what they might not do, yet- in California, we have our own body that comes in with their own types of rules and regulations that employers need to make sure that they're complying with. Otherwise, if they come in for either an audit or investigation and they want to issue citations and penalties, it's thousands and thousands of dollars that it can be from you know, a different agency, uh, for instance. So I want to talk about everybody's favorite topic, weed. <laughs> and back in January of 2017, uh, I was on a business trip to California, and it was right after recreational marijuana became legal uh, in the state. And I'm saying 2017, that may have been 2016. Uh, but I was driving from the airport, and I asked my Uber driver, okay, so it's been two weeks since this went legal. Uh, tell me what's really changed. And he looked in the rearview mirror, smiled, pulled out a joint, and handed it to me in the back seat. <laughs> Yeah. My VP of my VP of operations was with me and, and who's probably more conservative than I am. And she's like, oh, no, 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 don't take any pictures. Don't put it on Facebook. Don't know. And, um, and of course I did. But the uh, but I learned in college, you don't ever take drugs from strangers. So, I mean, it, it got thrown man. away. But, yeah, but uh, but, you know, so that was a wake up call. And now you look around the country and it's, you know, uh, what are we at? 38 states where we're, you know, it's, it's 36, 38, right. something like it's some right. big number. And, and California was on the cutting edge of that. Right. Uh, and when all of these laws were first passed, almost all of them had provisions that employers can still test for THC. Employers can still use the information for making employment decisions. They still get to be their own risk managers and all of that. Sure. But now that's changing in California, right? 
It is slightly in that, right, you can no longer, starting in January of 2024, you can no longer use a test for cannabis in your onboarding process and using that for denying somebody employment, for example. You're still allowed to use it in if somebody has already been onboarded and they're an employee of yours, there's an accident, you need to do your standard drug test for if somebody was intoxicated for various issues, perhaps workers' compensation, other types of liability, that's still okay. But you're right in that California, again, is a leader. They are expanding what people cannot be discriminated against on the base for the basis. Um, well, they're expanding what people cannot be discriminated against for. And that now includes cannabis or off work use of cannabis. And so what I've seen though, with some of my clients, they've been preparing for this actually, since we've known about it for a couple of years. And so I've been working with some of my clients over the past year or so, even putting, putting into effect updated policies, no longer testing for cannabis as part of their initial drug screening, because the reality is the tests aren't really good enough yet to know if somebody is currently intoxicated or under the influence of marijuana, or if they, you know, use marijuana two weeks ago or over the weekend. So I think what we've seen, and actually some of my employers who've shared with me, you know, there really aren't instances where marijuana is impacting the workplace, at least for some of my clients who I've been talking to, where other than they may see somebody and their eyes are red, they're acting sort of you know, in line with the characteristics that we all know that someone is either high or intoxicated in, in some kind of fashion. So what I've really been having conversations with my clients about is, you know what, it really is not an issue on the onboarding process if somebody tests positive for marijuana for their off use or off work use of marijuana. Really, we want to have policies in place for testing for intoxication in like an objective fashion. You know, that opens up the door. Who's allowed to decide that? It, or is it managers, supervisors who see somebody they believe to be intoxicated or high? But if you're going to take an employment action because of somebody's perception that another employee was high, maybe violated their drug and alcohol policy, um, I'm really. I really recommend and suggest to my clients to have alternatives to just a drug test. They go and test positive. Oh no, now there's a positive marijuana test where they could have been intoxicated, you know, that day or two weeks ago. It's still not great and not super clear on the different types, whether it's urine or saliva. I know there's mm -hmm. some back and forth of what's FDA approved, what what you can really use for that type of testing. So I've really been encouraging clients to look at for any type of employment decision that they're going to take, and if marijuana is involved at all, that there be other type of documentation or observations that could be documented, witnesses that might say, yes, they were acting in this way. I smelled the smell scent of marijuana in this person's office when I walked in. There was smoke I witnessed, and using that as a basis for employment-related decisions so that you aren't hit with a CRD or Civil Rights Department charge, formerly known as Department of Fair Employment and Housing in California, like any hit with any one of those charges, or better yet, you know, 
a lawsuit that is suing for somebody's off work use of marijuana, for example. So if you have contemporaneous documentation, which I'm sure you can agree with me as always some employer's best friend, uh, that that is going to help for a business if they're having to make kind of tough decisions sometimes dealing with walking that line of marijuana being involved. Yeah, for our non-regulated clients, you know, and Imperative is a background investigation company, but we also sell drug screening. And I've been advising for years that they pretty much just resign themselves to using, um, you know, looking at THC or marijuana like they do alcohol. If you show up impaired, right. we're going to have a uh, we're going to have an issue, right. uh, and we're going to do you know if you have a workplace accident, um, we're going to you know we're going to test uh, you know my I've got clients who took a number of years ago took THC off of their initial pre employment drug screening even in places where they could legally still test and which is still most places um, because they simply don't want to limit their candidate pool for yes. things that they really don't care about. I mean, there's a big difference between methamphetamine and, you know, weed. And so if somebody is in that position where we're trying to compete for talent, we're finding it's harder and harder, especially with younger generations to hire, you know, to hire individuals who haven't, you know, at some point in the last and it's a narrow window. This stuff, unless you know, unless you've got some exceptional biology, really, you know, leaves your system that's fully metabolized in four days. I mean, it's not you know, it's uh, for a a urine test, and if it's saliva, twenty four hours in that range. I mean, it's a very short term, and that's why it's better. So I think saliva is better uh, for uh, post accident because it may take. 12 to 24 hours for marijuana to be detectable in urine. Whereas if you're doing saliva and you're really concerned about a post-accident then, you know, then that's where you want to, to look at it. So it's not uncommon. I think my, what gives me the liver quiver is for the, the government to come in and say, an, you know, an employer can't consider their own, they can't manage this, you know, they can't, they, we get, we don't trust them to fairly manage this risk. So we're going to tell them to do otherwise, but, in reality, it just makes it harder for employers to hire if they're overcompensating for their risk by just out, you know, refusing to hire anyone who's used marijuana recently. Right. And I would agree with you, especially with some of the challenges that a lot of the my clients and businesses have had with hiring and maintaining talent. It's that if you are going to keep marijuana on that list, it sort of just adds a layer of complexity. When I think I agree with you that I think a lot of employers don't care if what they're doing off off work or, or after hours and off site isn't going to impact their work. They can still show up and contribute and perform. Then I think I think California, and I understand your concern, especially you coming from from Texas, where pew, you pew, want yeah. <laughs> you want everyone <laughs> employers should be able to govern themselves right. and all that. But you know, in California, you see th- see things a little differently. But having 
I see it that it's somewhat adding it to the list of protections that employers cannot discriminate against for the basis. I think, at least from what I've seen with my clients, they don't really care about it in the onboarding process. You care about it in post-accident. And if somebody's um, intoxicated or otherwise impaired at work, you still want to be able to take the appropriate steps you need to in order to protect the business and enforce your own drug and alcohol policy. Are there any implications that you see for federal contractors or others who have drug-free workplace requirements? Are there any special considerations there or how do you how do you address those? Yeah, I think that those are still because it's still illegal under federal law if they are contracting then they still need to be uh, compliant with those restrictions. That's been my interpretation is that, and they, because marijuana is still illegal in that regard, I don't think that that interplay between California's refusal to, or adding it to the list of discrimination is really going to, to impact that in any kind of significant way. So COVID has been over for depending on who you ask. I mean, the federal government, as of May, said, you know, the the national emergency is over. But California still has concerns uh, around COVID and the employment relationship. So what's going on there? So California, when the pandemic hit, Cal OSHA and the California Department of Public Health, they were somewhat racing back and forth between rolling out rules and regulations that employers, businesses needed to comply with for isolation, return to work guidance. It was kind of difficult to keep track of what was going on, but they were requirements. You know, we, we have California, we have an injury illness and prevention program or plan that needs to be in place for a majority of all employers, really, unless you have a more stringent requirement. And there was a, a requirement also that you had a COVID prevention plan, and that was in effect during the pandemic as well. So what California has done is essentially rolled out prevention requirements or non-emergent, Calosha non-emergent regulations and, and rules, really, that businesses need to follow. So the, what we had in effect with the requirements for a COVID prevention plan and testing and training and, you know, aerosol regulation and and it's and so on they have rolled out these rules that are in effect until February of 2025 that insist on all employers still being essentially vigilant and continuing to do what you were already doing in at least having a covid prevention plan some written document that outlines how you would handle covid in the workplace and how you would treat those individuals who do test positive obligations to exclude. And really just, I think California wants to continue, like just drag on a little bit further than maybe others, other states or the federal government might have asked of them. They're really just dragging on a lot of those same requirements of California businesses till at least 2025, record keeping until 2026. But there have been changes, you know, the outbreak definition changed for us in that it was 14 day within a 14-day period of time. It's now fewer down to like seven. So there are some changes that we still have to kind of keep on top of to make sure California employers' COVID prevention programs or plans are 
up to date. So it's just kind of a conti- the continuing obligation goes to stay on top of these various agencies and um, Calosha, particularly in California, and also the CDPH to make sure that they at least, thankfully, are now more consistent. Calosha has sort of allowed for more flexibility to track the CDPH in terms of their determinations about COVID, and which is a lot better than at different times in the pandemic. They were conflicting rules and regulations, and so that made things a little more chaotic. But now, thankfully, it's at least mellowed out. But again, I think ultimately it's just dragging on a lot of the obligations that were in place beforehand. And CDPH, California Division of Public Health? Department of Public Health. Department of Public Health. Okay. So yeah, you're right. I mean, and these go out till 2025, these current regulations. Is that right? Correct. That's correct. So here in Texas, you know, that's what's funny is because by September or October of 2020, we were kissing strangers on the street. I mean, it was just not even a thing, right? And so, you know, and and so it's interesting to hear because nobody's talking about COVID. And in a lot of the places, even when there's a breakout, okay, well, we'll, we'll be careful. I actually got it for the first time about a month ago. Oh, I wow. dodged it all these years. And, uh, wow. and, and, and unfortunately, I, I felt just bad enough to be a little tired and to test positive but not bad enough not to work. And I didn't get to binge, you know, 20 hours of Netflix or anything. So I got kind of ripped off. (laughs) And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative. Premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for three quarters of a recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select Episode 123 and enter the keyword California. That's C-A-L-I-F-O-R-N-I-A. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Corinne Spencer. So what are the high points, though? I mean, if a California employer is saying, okay, what do I need to be? What are the things that a a California employer really ought to have in place as far as COVID uh, prevention or containment goes? So they would want to have in writing a policy, a COVID prevention plan. And so that document will go over the different requirements they have and what they do for their employees. So It identifies a point person who is supposed to be in charge of handling and essentially administrating for the business in case you test positive for COVID. You want to outline what the symptoms are, what COVID kind of was, is, all of that. But it's really important. The most important thing, I think, is the return to work guidelines, what to do if someone does test positive, who has to test any of their close contacts, who has to be excluded, and those types of isolation guidelines, those you want to make sure are included in any kind of COVID prevention plan. And then also the type of training, what kind of training do you do? What do you do to assess hazards? Some of these things do track and follow the injury illness prevention plan somewhat, you know, their record keeping requirements as well. But I would say those are somewhat of the high points. It's really about if you test positive, what happens to you? What kind of benefits are available to you? You know, there used to be California supplemental paid sick leave. There used to be um, 
different types of benefits that were available to employees who tested positive. And those benefits were somewhat outlined or at least referred to in those programs. So it's still, I think, important or what California employers should know or want to know to include so that they can point their employees in the right direction if they do test positive and if if they do happen do not have your case of covid where yeah. they actually have to you know do miss work um put some people you know who either have long covid or have been are immunocompromised you know we've we've heard of it or we've seen it and so there are some examples there but for for an, a business for the high points those I would say that you want to identify what it is, who do people go to in the event of testing positive, what kind of testing requirements are available. So testing is at no cost to the employee in California. So if you there are, is an outbreak, you know, there's testing that needs to be offered and provided by the employers. So I think those would be, I, I believe, the high points to make sure you include and to make sure it's all in that COVID prevention plan. Because that written document is really the thing you need to have in case Kalosha comes knocking on your door. Maybe there is an accident, like a slip and fall in a warehouse, for example, and they may ask you for, let me see your IIPP or you know injury illness prevention plan. Let me see your CPP. Let me see your like heat, heat um, prevention. So they'll ask for these types of documents and you'd they can result in a penalty. They aren't as stringent as, for example, if there is a serious issue, but having those documents would be important in those types of instances when there may be an audit or Kalosha comes knocking for some other reason outside of, hey, let me start just surveying and checking all employers and their different COVID prevention plans. It's really, I think, something you want to have on hand so you're prepared in the event of an audit or an investigation. Does California have a paid leave mandate for COVID still or no. is, is, has that sunset? No, that's over, but they actually do have a new updated uh, paid sick leave requirement that will come into effect in January of 2024. So that's for the state and it used to be essentially three days or 24 hours of time. So that is another change that California employers need to keep an eye on upcoming in January. Um, of 2024 to make sure they update policies, update their sick leave banks, et cetera. So how many, uh, so it went from three, what is the, do you know what the paid sick leave magic number is now? It's now five days. So it would be five days. Yeah. Or 40 hours, I believe. Yeah. That math works out. So are most employers, what are you seeing employers do? Are they, you know, because a lot of employers in other places that don't have main, you know, don't have mandated sick leave, they just give employees X number of hours or days, uh, you know, total PTO, and you use it for what you need to. If you've got to have it in these different buckets like that, are employers, are they just suddenly giving the employees an extra two or three, an extra, you know, two days of of paid sick leave in addition to their other PTO? Or do you see them dividing the buckets up just differently? Or how's that working? For a lot of businesses, keeping them separate is beneficial because when employees leave, you don't have to pay them out the bucket of paid sick leave. So you do have to provide them with any kind of vacation pay. That's considered, you know, a wage, like a deferred wage benefit, essentially. So employers, if they have just a general PTO policy, 
that gets a little bit more difficult. You have to above and beyond include enough time so that you are meeting the minimum requirements of what the law now um, allows. But it's for those businesses who've already had the three, you know, what was three days beforehand and that bucket just adding the additional days, I think is the simplest move because you don't have to pay that those days, those hours out when people leave. And for some businesses, you know, it can add up to a lot of money if you're having to pay out everyone's just straight PTO because it's a little bit messier to know what was vacation, what was sick time. It's um, So I think that's that's what at least one of the considerations. And there's like a wage statement requirement also that you have to keep on their wages of how many hours they have left in, for example, their sick leave so that they are aware of that on an ongoing basis. So yeah, that's how I think most of my clients are planning to handle it with with that change that change in in the law. Uh, I've you know worked with and been on the board of the state chamber of commerce and the local chamber of commerce and this California companies flee to Texas and other places. <laughs> One of the things that I hear from business leaders is often the litigation is just getting out of hand and, and the threat of litigation at least uh, seems you know onerous. So uh, what's going on with employment related litigation? Is there, is there, are there any trends there that uh, would be unique to California? I think one of the biggest ones is, is PAGA. Like I, I think I mentioned earlier in our conversation, it's, Private Attorneys General Act. It's a specific, unique law to California. You know, it the issue went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court with the Viking Rivers uh, versus Moriana case. I think it was in July of 2022. But this unique law that California has allows for any employee to essentially be deputized on behalf of the state to enforce violations and. And so that is the big, I think one of the big different, like the different laws that we have to deal with in order to, but that also is a huge threat from a litigation standpoint, because they're very difficult to defend and employers have to face, well, I'm looking at every non-exempt employee of mine, former and current, up to a year prior before they have like filed their, um, you know, their notice. That is a huge threat and has been very difficult to to change. And I think it's actually going to be on the ballot though for the November 2024 ballot for California. They're trying to get an initiative initiative to change some of the aspects of PAGA because really the winners in those cases, at least especially I'm a defense lawyer, so I can be biased as well. The winners in those cases are really the plaintiff's attorneys. They get their huge, you know, their huge cut of whatever type of um, potential lawsuit for an, an award or even settlement. They get a huge cut of it. 75% of any of the penalties or the recovery goes to the state of California and 25% of the remainder then goes is split up between all the different employees. So they can be people who arguably are the aggrieved employees are getting pennies, for example, for whatever types of 
violations they might be subject to. So I think PAGA is the biggest headache right now that employers of all sizes are facing. That on top of class action threats, but we California at least has been able to, um, a win for employers was the ability to have mandatory arbitration agreements. So businesses can um, have as a condition of employment employees need to are onboarding, they need to sign an arbitration agreement. So any dispute on the individual basis has to be arbitrated rather than go to superior court. And within those arbitration agreements, we often see, you know, class action waivers. So that individual can't participate in a class action, but we they are not allowed to have that same um that same waiver for PAGA. PAGA is both a representative action and a non-representative action on the individual side. So it's a very unique law. I think only California employers are really facing it. And only California employers have this headache that they're really facing the expense of defending a lawsuit. They have to pay their own lawyers. They have to assess what the exposure could be. And then the plaintiff's attorneys are also wanting some cut of any kind of a settlement or or an award. So I imagine, you know, with employers either leaving California and they're looking for a safer place to run their business and not be dealing with this type of threat, that's been the like the biggest one. And of course, you know, during COVID things were a little, it, it was not these PAGA claims. And I think even class action wage and hours were not as common because people just weren't working as often. There were fewer pay periods where people were, were working, et cetera. But it's really been, I think the PAGA itself has been the type of claims that we're seeing more and more and all different types of employees be hit. So under PAGA, I just want to make sure a private attorney general. So I, as a plaintiff, I mean, is this like a private right, just a private cause of a private right of action? Or is it, or as a plaintiff's attorney, can I go and just decide, go through some process to decide to be the the attorney who's going to prosecute this company for some violation of um, employment law? I mean, I mean, where does, what is the private a- attorney general? What does that really mean? It really just means that it, there needs to be an aggrieved employee. So it has, it has to be the representative on behalf of the larger representative action has to be an aggrieved employee. So you can't just be a, a plaintiff's attorney trying to find anybody on the street they would never do that. <laughs> right. But they would need, oftentimes employees are disgruntled after they're, for example, terminated. They go, there are a lot of lawyers that want to help them or fight for their rights. And those employees in part of their normal practice, normal process, they send a demand letter for an employee's personnel and payroll records. They look at it. And oftentimes if we see that it was an employee who was probably terminated for got for a good cause, and there's not a solid individual claim there, then they will look at it for PAGA or wage and hour class action. And so I think every every plaintiff's lawyer or those plaintiff's lawyers is exceptionally focused on this area, see it as a really good opportunity to make money. So this is a way, I mean, does that mean like uh, maybe under normal state law, just like under a lot of federal law, you have to go to an agent. Normally, you have to go to an agency first and file a complaint and and go through that process and have them adjudicate whether you have a right to sue. 
Is is that just bypassing that? I, I'm still, I guess, confused as to what's unique about PAGA. Because I mean, if a disgruntled employee here goes talks to a plaintiff's lawyer and convinces them, I've got a you've got a claim here, you know, and the you know, and the, and the plaintiff's lawyer wants to take it often on contingency, they can just file that. So how does how is I'm sorry if I'm being dense. I'm just trying to understand how PAGA is, and being dense is my superpower. So um, you know, forgive me, but the. I just understand how PAGA makes changes the landscape there. Well, so they still have to actually, the agency is the, is the LWDA, the Labor and Workforce Development Agency. So they first have to send a letter, the plaintiff's attorney has to send a letter to this agency for them to decide whether or not they are going to investigate on behalf of the disgruntled or aggrieved employee. So they send this letter out. They get roughly like 65 days to see if if the LWDA will investigate and take on a case on behalf of an employee. Essentially, if that time frame expires, then they can go ahead and bring the lawsuit on behalf of the state. So they are in effect like deputized. That employee is deputized Uh. to bring this lawsuit on behalf of the state because the state arguably does not have enough resources to to bring the action on behalf of that employee or other employees similarly situated. So they do have to kind of wait and get almost that, you know, the right to sue, which isn't actually an affirmative. They, they don't have enough resources to send something out. It's just if the time passes, then they're able to okay. bring the lawsuit in court. They have met their, you know, administrative uh, duties, and then they can go ahead and bring the action. And they do have to keep the LWDA needs to be apprised of, you know, if there's going to be a settlement and so on, and they get the money gets directed to the state in that regard. But there really isn't a whole lot more oversight or involvement if the LWDA chooses not to get involved in the case at the outset then it's really the plaintiff's attorneys and their client who then move forward and are they ultimately get more than anybody else in this representative action because the plaintiff's attorneys, like I said, get their cut. State gets 75%. 25% is split between the employees and the plaintiff, if you will, just gets some small, um, just a small award for being the representative. Which the plaintiff lawyers probably don't really explain very clearly at the beginning. Correct, I would but, think not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the but okay, so really, it's a response. Paga is a response to just the inefficiencies of the bureaucracy and understaffing or whatever else in 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 the state of California. And so they've said we're just going to deputize. Uh, if if we don't do our job in the prescribed time and statutory you know time limits, then we're just going to deputize other people. And I can see why employers hate that because right. it probably benefited employers uh, to have a bureaucracy that that wasn't very efficient and or very responsive. Right, and it's like I, and like I said, it can be any kind of technicality under the labor code. It's not just a specific set of set of rules or um, 
so it can be, it's just very vast and the threshold of what you have to prove is very low and the protections under class action lawsuits, which you have to go ahead and prove and get your class certified and go through a more stringent process, those you don't have in a pocket case. So that's another thing that makes it just like an easier, more low-hanging fruit, if you will, for an employee who's disgruntled. They go to a plaintiff's lawyer and the plaintiff's lawyer is like, well, looks like you were terminated for cause. I don't think we have a strong case there for wrongful termination. Ooh, you signed an arbitration agreement. I don't think that you're going to have you can't we can't bring a class action on your on your behalf. And oh, but let's make sure let's look at your wage statements. If one was wrong or didn't have the right meal period penalty on there, that's going to trigger a violation. It's going to trigger, you know, penalties for all sorts of different kinds of derivative claims. Let's go let's go file a PAGA suit. And that's often I think how that analysis or shortcut. They go fishing. Exactly. And PAGA is kind of like your low hanging fruit. You're going to probably get something. The employers are afraid to have to truly defend them or how expensive it is because it's not covered. You can't insure PAGA either um, in California. So it's, it's, it's very, very tough from a financial and a business standpoint for, for employers in California facing these types of claims. So EPLI doesn't cover a PAGA claim? No, that's it doesn't cover wow. it doesn't cover a PAGA claim. Like there are some defense like you can get I think some policies are written where some of the atten- uh, defense fees might be covered, but because it's similar to a wage and hour violation, which wage and hour uh, claims are not covered by EPLI. EPLI covers more of your standard discrimination, um, retaliation types of claims. But yeah, that's been that's been my understanding up until now as well. So, wage and hour. What kind of claims are you seeing under wage and anything unique under wage and hour recently? Now that everybody's back at work. Yeah, I think it's still the missed meal periods are a big one appropriately tracking employee time. So the clocking in and out for having accurate accurate timekeeping, that's still, I think, the driving force because a lot of businesses, for whatever reasons, are still trying to get onto that the bandwagon of employees clocking in and out, especially for lunch, instead of just like, oh, well, we'll just pay them for lunch. They'll clock in in the morning, clock out at night. We'll pay them for lunch. It's fine. And that just doesn't really, that doesn't, it doesn't comply with the requirements for timekeeping. And so businesses, I think, are still trying to get, get caught up with implementing really good, um, you know, timekeeping software and timekeeping capabilities, and also having systems in place that can track or auto pay a missed meal. If someone takes their missed meal period, or sorry, if someone takes a short less than 30 minute meal period, they can be technically entitled to a to a premium. Now you could investigate that, say really what, what happened? Was it a mistake? You punched incorrectly. But that is still, I think, what we're seeing as the the meal breaks and the derivative claims from that, which if you don't pay your employees their appropriate, you know, missed meal penalties. And like I said, it can impact their wage statement. So there can be an inaccurate wage statement claim. There can be a failure to pay their final wages claim um, under Labor Code 203. So there are all of these other derivative types of penalties that 
I'm still seeing that as the driving force because you can include all these other layers of claims that make it seem like a more threatening and a higher value lawsuit. So that is still what I'm seeing a lot of. Wow, that we've covered a lot. And I appreciate your time. And, and I've taken you right up to the time. I promised you I'd let you go. So, and I wanted to talk about California's uh, Fair Chance Act. Some changes to that went into effect October 1st. But I think to give it uh, its justice, I'm going to try and see if we can do another episode just on that topic. Because it's a, it's a hot topic and employers can really step into it and drag it all over the carpet if they're if they're not careful and i want to make sure that we we give it time if that'll work for you we'll try to find another time to follow up on that sure no that sounds great I'd, i'd love to come back and chat with you and thank you corinne for being on the podcast i really appreciate your time it's been my pleasure mike thank you so much and thank you for listening You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey, as always. Don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.